Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray, my friend Jamie Englehart. And I'm going to give you a little teaser here. I, I wish you could have been with us talking in between episodes because we got into some really good stuff. <laughs> but we're going to get into some more really good stuff now. So, Jamie, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be with you again. Good to be with you. And uh, you have a book called Myths and Mistranslations unpacking 70 misconceptions about God and the Bible. And I'd like to take some time on this episode, if, and we'll tell people where to get that book when we finish up, but unpack some of those for us, and in particular, show us how believing a wrong teaching, believing a lie, what effect does that have on us in our life? For me, I'll start with, it's not the first myth, but the number one that kept me probably in bondage for a lot of years. And it's the myth based out of Matthew, where Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And I remember I probably got saved 50 times just with that passage because, you know, evangelists would come through and say, see, Jesus here is talking to Christians and he's telling these Christians that, you know, I mean, you can walk with God and be faithful because he said, uh, you know, you can heal the sick and raise the dead and do all these miracles. And even if you do all these miracles, he's still going to someday say, depart from me. I never knew you. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, as a kid going, seriously, like I can faithfully serve God like Moses. And because I strike the rock rather than speak to the rock, don't pass go, don't collect $200 straight to hell. And so it caused me to just say, I'm going to go get high. You know, so, I mean, for five years, I became the preacher's kid they told you to stay away from, you know, <laughs> just just because the views of God that were given me were so messed up that I was like, man, you know, why, why would I have anything to do with this person? And then when you're raised in the fear of the Lord, you know, and, and they teach you that it's terror rather than awe and respect and honor, you can't be intimate with someone you're terrified of. It's absolutely impossible to be, uh, you know, I mean, if my wife would have told me that when I went away on a trip and I came home and the garage door came up and my kids ran to the room to hide in the closet because dad was coming, I would have been horrified. Instead, you know, she's like, you're jumping up and down. They're all excited that you're home. But that's really a lot of the views we have of God that when he comes back someday, you know, you, you better go hide in the closet, you know, especially if you didn't dot the I's and cross the T's. And so in context, when I began to understand that, first of all, Jesus wasn't talking to yous, he was talking to Jews, right? The words in red are rarely, I mean, he wasn't talking to Christians because there were no Christians yet. There were no Christians till after the resurrection and after, you know, the covenant wasn't enacted until the testator died. And so in that whole thing, Jesus is actually from Matthew 5 all the way through Matthew 7. He ends, of course, with the story of the ones that hear my word and do my word, build their house on the rock. The ones that don't listen to my word and hear it, they build their house on the sand and their house will fall and great will be the fall of that house. That house was the temple. 
was talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He was speaking to the Jews about whether they would receive their Messiah, listen to his message of nonviolence and enemy love, and then this wouldn't have to happen. That's why he's weeping over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. And so in Matthew 7, when he's telling him this, he's talking about false prophets, and he's not talking about any Christians whatsoever. He would never say to a new covenant child of God who's known and loved of God, I never knew you. Now, it would be different if he would have said, you never knew me. That might be a different discussion, but we know he knows this by name. We know he knows the very hairs of our head. So that depart from me thing, I said, this has nothing to do with any Christian. He was speaking specifically to Jews that weren't going to receive him. And the depart from me wasn't about sending them into hell. It was literally about what was going to happen in that three and a half year war when 600 Christians fled Jerusalem and survived and 1.3 Jews were slaughtered by the Romans dumped into Gehenna or thrown into hell and set on fire and then departed from him. It doesn't mean that he didn't love them or anything else. But those type of verses kept me a lot of years actually away from God because I'm like, how petty? You know, I remember when I was 10 years old, we moved from Northern Michigan to mid-Michigan and my best friend in Northern Michigan was three years older than me. His name was Todd. And he had a messed up family. His mother was on prescription drugs. His brother had all kinds of mental issues. His dad was in prison. And my family was his only stability. He ate in our house almost every night, went to church with us, accepted Jesus, went to camp with me, was filled with the Holy Spirit, had incredible encounters with God. But then we moved and we were his stability. So we move in June, October. My parents sent me down from school when I got home from school and said, son, uh, we got to tell you something your friend Todd died. And I'm like, what do you mean he died? I just talked to him last week. They're like he got around some wrong friends. They had him try heroin and they gave him too much and he OD'd and he died. Well, it broke my heart. And I remember looking at my dad and I said, well, dad, Todd's in heaven, right? And my dad with his understanding back then, he's like, well, no, son, you know, Todd's past the age of accountability. And, you know, so he made that decision and he's in hell. That started turning my heart away from Abba Father. Because I was like, if he's that petty, I mean, I remember looking at my dad and I said, so you're telling me that if he would have died three months ago when he was 12, on the 11th month, on the 30th day at 1159, he'd be okay. But now that he passed this magical number, all of a sudden he's frying forever. And actually one of my myths is the age of accountability, which is nowhere in scripture. We get it really from the bar mitzvah where someone stepped into sonship and maturity, but there's just no scripture for it whatsoever. I mean, and so all of these things, it affects. I remember God said to me 12 years ago, he said, everywhere you travel, I want you to remove from the church fear-based theologies, and I want you to repaint Abba to the church. I want you to show them that he's better than they ever thought. He's kinder and more merciful than they ever dreamed. The gospel is gooder and better than anybody ever thought that it was. But many times to be able to do that, you almost have to deconstruct the myths about God and the mistranslations and the stuff that keeps people in bondage. You know, I mentioned in in our last episode, you know, the idea of it's one of my myths also is God can't look on sin. I mean, I used to think that sin to God was like kryptonite to Superman. You know, that God is so holy and righteous. When he got around sin, he would go weak in the knees and he couldn't stand it. God hates sin. Well, yeah, he hates sin, but not because of what it does to him. He hates sin because of what it does to his kids. 
because of what it does to us. The truth is where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Grace not a thing, it's a person. God runs towards our sin. He didn't run from Adam and Eve. He ran towards Adam and Eve. He didn't run from Cain. When Cain killed his brother, he got close enough to Cain to put his finger on his forehead. So God absolutely touches sin gets around sin. He doesn't run from our mess. He runs towards our mess. As my friend, Dr. Lynn Howe says all the time, God's a stalker. He don't run from you. He's running towards you constantly, just like the father running towards the prodigal doesn't run away from his mess, but instead embraces him in the midst of it. And so our ideas about all of that, if it's a misunderstanding, if it's a mistranslation, if there's something there that shouldn't be there, it absolutely affects our everyday life. Yeah. It, affect, it affects how we treat people. It affects our language. It affects mm-hmm. our verbiage. It literally affects everything. You know, I mean, the last myth I did, because when I wrote the book, I actually started doing on Facebook something called Myths and Mistranslations. And I got to 30 of them. And they were just stuff I'd studied through the years. And people started messaging me saying, is there a way we can get all these together? And it dawned on me, I was actually writing a book on Facebook. And so, <laughs> you know, which maybe that's what Facebook's supposed to be for. And uh, But the only myth I never put on Facebook was the 70th one. And the 70th one was God never sends anybody to hell. They send themselves. I mean, that's what Christians say whenever questions them about hell. Well, okay, God is good and God is love, but what about hell? Oh, well, God doesn't have anything to do with that. God doesn't send people to hell. They send themselves because of their unbelief. Well, first of all, there's not one scripture and verse for that. On top of it, Jesus has the keys. So how do you get in if you don't have the keys? I mean, first of all, you you can't send yourself someplace you have no access to. So you can't send yourself to a place that Jesus has the keys to. And we just say this stuff. Truly, I think it's because it's so horrifying to every Christian, the idea of eternal torture and torment. And so we come up with something in their mind to make God look better because we can't imagine it. And I tell people all the time, I said, if you're okay with your God, doing something to another human that is horrifying to you, and it's something you would never do to another human, then you're not serving the God that looks like Jesus. You're not serving Abba Father. You're serving another God, another Jesus. You're you're having a wrong view of him. And so I went through in that book, and we hit the age of accountability. Uh, I hit, you know, the phrase Christians love to say all the time when something bad happens. Well, you know, God is in control. I mean, people just love, they throw out the God is in control. And it's like, no, he's not. You know, I mean, God created mankind and said, let us create men and let them have dominion of the earth. He, you know, Psalms puts it like this. The heavens are the Lord's, but earth have I given to man. God gave the earth realm to man to function and to flow and take care of man jacked it up and man by the, now the help of the Holy spirit, the paraclete, we're the ones called to put it back together again. God, if God is in control of everything that happens on the planet, I don't want anything to do with him. That means he's okay with cancer. He's okay with the sex slave trade. He's okay with poverty. And we know God is not okay with any of that. Mm-hmm. The truth is man produced that and man by the help of the Holy spirit is called to put it back together again. That's why Jesus is the savior of the world, not the savior from the world. The Jews called it a Tikkun Olam. They believed that when the Messiah would come, he would renovate the earth. And the earth has been on a renovation project for the last three days, you know, and it takes longer than three days to renovate something. And God's been doing this incredible, incredible work in and through the church. That's why I said the kingdom of God is like leaven. 
Little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's been increasing for the last yeah, 2,000 years. That's so good, Jamie. And you know, one thing that came to my mind while you were talking, when God created us recently, the Lord showed me something. When the Lord said to Adam and Eve, whether you believe they were a real couple or a representative of mankind or whatever, he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Well, I always thought that meant have kids and more kids and more kids. He showed me this week, no, be fruitful, fruit of the Spirit, multiply and fill the earth with God's unconditional love and grace and pure light for everyone. Has nothing to do with procreating more kids. No, it's be be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with real joy, real truth, real light, real love. That's a little different way to look at that. I think it's probably a little bit of both and, you know, because obviously we also also do that through family. But for me, the most powerful thing and this is something just in the last year and a half that I discovered in study is when God gives that grace mandate, I used to call it the dominion mandate, but it's five things. Five is the number of grace. It's a grace mandate. Because the first thing God did is it says, and God blessed them. And and I think, you know, we don't pay attention to that a lot of times, but that word they're blessed, it's one of the seven Hebrew words for praise. And it's the word Barak. The first time the word praise is found in scripture. So the first thing God did with mankind was brought means to bow, it means to affirm, it means to praise. So the first thing God did with mankind, his kids, was he bowed before them, he praised them, and he affirmed them. Now, I remember when I studied that back in the 90s, I didn't even touch it. I was like, well, you know, that's that's sacrilegious. You know, there's no way a creator bowed before his creation. That's not going to happen until you understand that what Jesus came to reveal about who God was is that he's father. Every parent bows before their children. Every parent praises their children. Every parent affirms their children. So the first thing God did as father with his kids was he got down on the ground and played with them. It's what we do. And, you know, this this idea that, you know, and Jesus, of course, was our example. And the last thing Jesus did was he bowed before his disciples and he washed their feet affirmed them, praised them, told them, listen, you know, you, you boys got this. I'm, I'm leaving, but you're going to be okay. And so why would we think that if we're that way and God made us in his image and likeness that Abba would be in a different way? And the thing that's interesting is in Genesis 1, when it says God created everything, the word for God there is Elohim, master, Lord, ruler, sovereign, king. But when he creates man, he calls himself Lord God which is Yahweh Elohim. Well, Jews never say the name Yahweh. First of all, it's impronounceable because there's, you know, there's no vowels. It's like Yiva. And so Orthodox Jews have taught for thousands of years. Part of their oral tradition is that God revealed himself to Adam and Eve at that moment, not as Yahweh Elohim, but Hashem Elohim. Hashem is a Hebrew, like if you've ever gone to a bar mitzvah, you'll actually hear the word Hashem quite often. It's a word for mom, dad, uncle, aunt. And so God reveals himself. The Jews believe that God revealed himself to mankind as father Elohim. And so, which is why the first thing he does is he bows, he praises, he affirms. But then the serpent comes and the serpent deceives Adam and Eve to believe that they're not sons and that God is not their father. Because the serpent comes and says, has not Elohim said. He gets them to, first of all, he leaves off the Hashem, 
and he just calls him Elohim. In other words, this is a master that you're here to serve, not a father that wants to have an intimate relationship with you. Uh. And he said, if you believe this, you'll be like God, which they should have said, we already are. We're already in his image. We're already in his likeness. So the deception in the garden was deceiving mankind into believing God was not their father and they were not his sons, but they were his servants. So everything we read from Genesis 4 on was written through the lens of servants and slaves trying to figure out how to have a relationship with a master. That's why John 1.18 says, no man has seen God at any time until Jesus revealed him. And so that's why all through the Old Testament, that was written through the lens of servants and slaves. It was written. It wasn't written through the lens of sons that had an intimate relationship with the father, but servants and slaves yeah. trying to figure out how to relationship with the master. It helped me a lot with understanding the Old Testament because yeah. I understand why Marcion in the first century said, you know, the, the, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the Jews. He's not the Abba of Jesus. And Marcion threw the Old Testament out, which, of course, that was refuted as heresy uh, because yeah. it's <clears throat> thrown out. The law and the prophets speak yeah. of him. But that's what confuses a lot of people. Well, sure. And Jesus said point blank. He said, not a single person ever knew the Father or me. I mean, he said that in Matthew eleven twenty seven, and and again in John what eight thirty six, something like that. And so, I teach from the Bible. I love the Bible. I don't worship it. I don't believe that it's infallible. I believe that God did inspire people to write things, but the people he inspired to write, none of them knew him. So what they wrote, they wrote through their own lens of an angry God who was keeping track of what they were going to do, just waiting to punish him, going to get him, and they had to do something to get right with him. So we could tell all kinds of stories of you know, people, the way they interpret the Bible and all that. But I was thinking the other day, I like Proverbs. There are a lot of good wisdom there. But, you know, somebody was saying we get all the stuff that we need for living through the Proverbs. And I probably didn't say this as nicely as I'd like to, but I said, is there good wisdom in there for how to relate to your wife, your spouse? Oh, yeah. And he said, you know, that was written by a guy who had 300 wives and a thousand mistresses. You're going to put stock in what he says? Oh, well, 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 well. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I love what N.T. Wright, who's an amazing author and one of the most respected theologians alive today. Yeah. I have a quote from him where he said, the Old Testament is a picture of us. The New Testament is a picture of God revealed in Christ. In other words, it's like man trying to figure God out. Yeah. And again, Paul said all that was written beforehand was written for our admonition to give us hope because of these people who didn't have a clear revelation of God revealed in Christ, if they, by faith, yeah. could attain what they attained, how much more yeah. Yeah. Now we can't live on this side of the cross? And so, right. you know, there's infinite purpose in it, but they were living in the shadows. We live in the substance, you know, we, oh, they yeah. were towards the light. We're in the light, looking back into the shadows to yeah. find the pearl of great price there. And so, oh, yeah. I I heard somebody say the other day, the Old Testament's too scary a place to go without Jesus. Come on. on. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway, with with my book, I really, I went after 70 things, you know, I mean, I mean, we, uh, you know, we hit everything from the idea of the devil and demons have never been in hell. You know, that's not their headquarters, you know, uh, that goes about on the earth seeking who they may devour. 
That's somewhere that they get cast, depending on your eschatology when and, and all that. Uh, you know, the idea that, I mean, I remember hearing a sermon when I was growing up that hell has enlarged itself. That, you know, because of all the sinners, God created hell for the devil and demons, but then he had to enlarge hell, you know, to fit more people. And yet when you go to that passage in Isaiah, all Isaiah is saying in that passage is there's a battle coming and you're going to have to dig bigger graves. And they mistranslated the word grave, Sheol, and they put hell in there. Yeah. And so it makes it sound like you had to enlarge. Where all he was saying is you got to dig bigger graves because there's going to be so much death. You're going to have to throw more bodies. You know, I mean, it's yeah. amazing how we take yeah. stuff out of context oh. and we, I, we put fear on people with this stuff. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I think the clearest teaching I've ever seen in scripture on hell is in Luke 15. The older boy, the older son, was so mad at the father because he was better than he thought he should be. And he didn't want his brother getting the unconditional love and grace and inclusion of the father. He was so mad at him. He was so angry that he refused to go into the party. He was in a hell of his own creating. And the father was right there with him and stayed there with him. At the end of that story, that's what hell is. Yeah. Well, one of my myths, and this actually got me booted from a grace group that I was speaking in, which I'm not going to talk about any of that. Wonderful people. I love them. You know, they're my brothers and my sisters. But I put up my myth, and the myth was that hell is a place that is void of God's presence. We've always heard that. You know, well, yeah, if you go to hell, the thing that's bad about hell is that God's presence isn't there. And all I did was quote Psalm 139, where David said, where can I go from your presence, O God? If I ascend to the highest heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, in Sheol, in the grave, you're even there. And I said, David seemed to think that God's presence was actually in hell. And I said, if God's presence is not in hell, then hell is a God to itself. Because there's nowhere God is not. He's above all, through all, in all. He fills all things. Everything is where he is. And I said, even if you believe in eternal punishment, that shouldn't bother you. Because even in the idea of eternal punishment is someone could sense God's presence, but never enjoy God's presence. So which should make it even more punishing. But no, all of a sudden I got called all kinds of isms and all kinds of names just because I quoted David, you know. And so it's it's just amazing. (laughs) How many things that have been regurgitated through the years, you know, things that we have heard, things that we have uh, been taught that just either isn't in scripture or they've been completely mistranslated. I mean, you know, when I did my e-course on hell, you know, the word hell doesn't exist in the Bible. Right. You know, in the original language. I mean, it was added in the eighth century by Germans, you know, and even then the word they put in hell which means to like hell an onion. It means to cover or to veil. And I said, well, anytime we're still living alienated from God in our mind, and there's still a veil over our mind because we've not turned to Christ, we're in darkness. That's hell. You know, when you turn to Christ, the veil is removed. Right. You're no longer in hell. You know, not now you're enjoying uh, the kingdom of heaven living yeah. on earth and you awaken to Christ in you, the hope of glory, you know, yeah. which is oh, I agree. from the ages. I agree. Jamie, we've talked about the past and some things that are happening now. If you have time, we'll do one more episode and talk about what you see coming up in the future. So we finish up now. Tell people once again the name of your book, where they can get it, how they can connect with you. Then we'll close up, hit the pause button, and we'll do another one. 
Yeah, the name of the book is Myths and Mistranslations, Unpacking 70 Misconceptions About God in the Bible. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's also on Kindle. You can go to my website at him, H-I-M, connect.net. And on there, I also have an audio version with commentary. So people that don't have time to read, but they like to listen, you go directly to my website, go to the store and look for the book. And there's an audio version. And right now, I think it's even only like nine bucks. Uh, You can go on there. And so it's almost like two books in one because I read each myth and then give about a three to five minute commentary on it. So wow. it's actually yeah, getting getting even more in the audio version. That's the best way, best way to get it. Great. Well, again, folks who are listening and watching now will have the opportunity to, to hear us again next week, still wearing the same clothes we've worn for the last two weeks. So, Jamie, thanks again for being with us. And thanks, everybody, for joining us for another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. We'll see you next time, and Jamie will be back with me. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.